This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to this Intelligence Squared podcast. I'm Farah Jassat. And before we go to this week's episode, I want to share some exciting news. We've recently launched Intelligence Squared Plus, a new digital subscription service for online events. If you're a fan of our podcast, you can now listen to them while they're being recorded. You can join our most high profile speakers in live interactive online events and ask your questions directly to them from the comfort of your home. We have an amazing lineup over the coming months, from authors like Margaret Atwood and Salman Rushdie to big thinkers like the New York Times columnist Thomas Friedman and the economist Thomas Piketty, as well as the big names in arts and culture like the singer Paloma Faith, chef Yotam Atalengi and podcaster Elizabeth Day. If you still need convincing, here's a message from our friend Stephen Fry. Hello, I'm Stephen Fry and I'd like to encourage you to subscribe to Intelligence Squared Plus, the new and very modestly priced digital subscription service from my friends at Intelligence Squared. You would, I think, be hard-pressed to find an organisation that better presents and supports debate, discussion and civilised, rigorous conversation. Perhaps never before has the world needed all of these things quite so keenly. Perhaps you'll be kind enough to support Intelligence Squared by signing up for this service. It only costs £5 a month. Do consider it. Thank you very much indeed. So there you have it. If you're interested, please do click on the link in our podcast description or go to intelligencesquared.com. We hope to see you virtually at one of our online events very soon. And I'll now hand over to my colleague Connor to tell us more about this week's episode. Thank you, Farah, and hello, podcast listeners. In this week's episode, former Surgeon General of the United States, Dr. Vivek Murthy, spoke to Ros Irwin about his new book, Together, Loneliness, Health, and What Happens When We Find Connection. They spoke about how loneliness lies behind some of our greatest personal and also societal challenges, from anxiety and depression to addiction and violence. It's a really fascinating conversation about the importance of human connection, which I'm sure will resonate with any of our listeners who are in lockdown at the minute, and we hope you enjoy it. Hello, I'm Rosamond Irwin, a senior reporter at the Sunday Times, and welcome to this episode of the Intelligence Squared podcast. You can sign up for regular updates about podcasts and online events at intelligencesquared.com. I'm here with Dr. Vivek Murthy, the former US Surgeon General and author of the new book, Together, Loneliness, Health, and What Happens When We Find Connection. Welcome. Thank you so much, Rosamond. It's great to be with you. This feels like a very apt book for now, but of course, you had this idea before the pandemic. What was it that first made you interested in loneliness? Well, when I was Surgeon General, I had this great privilege of going 
to communities all across America, and in some cases around the world, and speaking with people about what was on their mind. In fact, I began my tenure with a, a listening tour where I tried to do just that, to give me a sense of what people were struggling with, what their priorities were when it came to health. And I heard many stories that I expected to hear, stories around substance use and addiction, around violence in communities. I heard people who were concerned about their children and worrying about rising levels of depression and anxiety among kids. And I also heard from people who looked at the rising rates of chronic illness in their families and their communities, whether that was obesity or diabetes, and they wondered what was going on, what we were doing wrong. These were not surprising stories, although they were certainly helpful to hear. But what was surprising to me was that behind so many of these uh, narratives was were threads of loneliness that I did not expect to hear. People would say things like, I feel I have to bear all of these burdens all on my own, or I feel if I disappear tomorrow, no one would even notice, or I feel invisible. And hearing that again and again from mothers and fathers, from college students, from farmers, from members of Congress, made me realize that loneliness was far more common than I had thought. And Rosmond, it, it reminded me of two experiences. One was my own personal experience of struggling with loneliness as a child and then often later into adulthood. But the second was my experience with patients. Over the years, recognizing as a doctor that so many of my patients would come into the hospital alone. And even at extraordinarily difficult moments when we had to share a painful diagnosis or make an extremely difficult decision on what path of treatment to pursue, there was often no one there to make these decisions with them, to take in the news, um, to figure out how to move forward. I even remember so many instances in the final moments of a person's life uh, that the only ones there to witness that patient's passing were myself and my colleagues in the hospital. And I was reminded of that loneliness that I had seen in the lives of my patients and in my own life when I was Surgeon General listening to these stories all across America. It taught me that loneliness was far more common than I thought. And as I came to realize later, it was far more consequential for our health than I had imagined. What exactly is loneliness? You say in the book that it's not the same as isolation. So what is the distinction and how do you categorize the different forms of loneliness? Well, loneliness is a subjective feeling. It's the feeling that the connections that we need in our lives are greater than the social connections we actually have. And in that gap, we experience loneliness. It's different from an objective measure, like isolation, which is more of a description of the number of people we have around us. Because loneliness is subjective, it means that we can be surrounded by many, many people and still feel lonely if we don't feel good about the quality of those connections. If we're, for example, a college student uh, or in university and we're surrounded by many other students, but we don't feel we can necessarily be ourselves or share openly or be vulnerable with them, then we may feel lonely. On the other hand, we may just be around a couple of people, 
But if we feel like we have strong connections with them, that we can show up as ourselves and that they can do the same with us, then we may not feel lonely at all. And obviously we're in a, a, a very odd time at the moment when all of us are cut off from others and keeping our distance. What do you think that's doing to us on an individual level and then as a society too? When I wrote this book, Rosman, I, I could not have imagined that we would be in this kind of pandemic this quickly that would require us to socially distance ourselves from others, or as I like to think of it, physically distance ourselves from others more so than socially. And what this is doing is it's creating an even greater stress on our system and on society and pushing people who were struggling with loneliness before to in many cases experience an even deeper level of loneliness. And for people who may not have been struggling with loneliness, it's perhaps giving them an, a, a taste of what that is like. Uh, and for many people, it doesn't feel good. I think there are one of two directions that we can go in the face of this pandemic. One is down the path of deepening loneliness, where we, as we further separate ourselves from each other for longer periods of time, and incur a social recession that I think will be just as consequential for our health and well-being as the economic recession that may be upon us. But I don't think that's the path that we have to go down. I think there's another path we can take, one where we use this opportunity and this moment of crisis to step back and to take stock of our lives, to ask ourselves, what role do we want people and relationships to play in our life going forward? This is a moment where so many of us are recognizing just how important those connections are and how much we miss them, not just the connections with family and friends, but also just the opportunity to see neighbors and strangers in our community. Uh, I've thought often over the last few weeks about how nice it would be just to sit in a coffee shop with strangers and enjoy that sense of community. I think if we use this as an opportunity to recenter and recommit to the relationships in our lives, then we may emerge from this more deeply connected and on a path for greater connection than we experienced even before uh, the pandemic began. When you think about loneliness, it's important to recognize your different types of loneliness as well. Uh, in the book, I talk about three types in particular. I talk about intimate loneliness, relational loneliness, and collective loneliness. Intimate loneliness is what we experience when we do not have the kind of close connections where we can fully be ourselves, where we can be vulnerable with other people. This might be a relationship with a spouse or with a best friend, but these are really important relationships, and we spend the bulk of our time actually uh, the bulk of our social time uh, with people with whom we enjoy intimate relationships. The second type of relationship uh, are our connections with friends, the kind of people we would spend weekends or evenings with, with whom we may go out to dinner or to a concert or a ball game. And when we lack those friendships, relationships where we just feel comfortable and in spending time with others and enjoy that time, then we can experience relational loneliness. And finally, there is collective loneliness, which reflects 
the absence of a group identity, when we are connected to a larger community because we have a shared mission uh, or because we care about a cause and we are all volunteering together or because we're part of a of a faith group, those identities are extremely powerful. They make us feel like we are part of something that's bigger than us. And when we lack those connections, we feel uh, collective loneliness. The reason these three types of loneliness are important to understand is when you recognize these three categories of need, you can quickly understand why one can be in a deeply fulfilling relationship, but still feel alone if you don't have the friendships and collective ties in a community that most of us need. It's If you don't understand that these three types of relationships are important, then you might think that if your spouse is lonely, that it's a reflection of your marriage not being as good as it should be. You might think it's a reflection on you in some ways, but that's not necessarily the case. You, you mentioned that this could be a crisis that actually makes us evaluate what matters and, and, and have perhaps combat loneliness as part of that. And in the book, you have the example of um, past crisis, 9-11, and the impact that had in the immediate aftermath and a time when people actually did something extraordinarily brave actually on, on the day when they rescued people on boats and showed uh, from from lower manhattan and showed a sort of this sort of hardwired connection with others do you think that is something that could come out of this a similar example i think it could the 911 boat lift was an extraordinary story of human connection and resilience it's one of the lesser-known stories of 9-11. But on that day when the Twin Towers were struck by two airplanes in New York City, people at the time experienced extraordinary fear and confusion. They wanted to get away from the scene, but they didn't know what direction they were going in. So some people went north, other people went south. And for those who fled south, they were met very quickly by the unforgiving waters of the Hudson River, which offered them no path to safety. And so as time passed, and as the smoke and the fire built behind them, the crowds grew as well, and people became more and more desperate. And in that moment, the Coast Guard recognized that there were more people who were at the southern tip of Manhattan than they could rescue uh, in the short time frame that they had. So they issued an unprecedented call to all civilian boats in the area, asking people to help them rescue people who had gathered at, the, uh, at that southernmost tip of Manhattan. And what was extraordinary was that within minutes, scores of boats responded and could be seen streaking toward that gathering crowd. And they gathered people on board, they gave them water, they ferried them to safety. And within several hours, they had rescued nearly half a million people. I mean, it's an extraordinary act of service considering that they did not know what they were going toward. They did not know if there were more planes coming. They didn't know if there were bombs involved. They didn't know if they were putting their own lives at risk. But yet, they made the decision, so many people, to run toward the fire in that moment of danger. And they rescue people as a result of it. 
you know, when the chips are down in moments of extraordinary crisis, we respond with our humanity. I know it's, it's, it's simple and easy to think in these days, in our cynical moments, that we all look out for ourselves and that we're primarily driven by self-interest. But I think that the human story is far more complicated than that. I think when the chips are down, we actually do come together and look out for one another. We see that in moments of extraordinary crisis, whether it's a natural disaster, like a typhoon or a hurricane, or whether it's a man-made disaster, like 9-11, or whether it's a pandemic, uh, which we're facing in this moment. I have seen, even in the last few weeks, so many people step up to provide care packages and food for medical professionals and their families who are on the front lines. I've seen people dip into their own pockets uh, to buy groceries for neighbors who are older and a greater risk of complications of COVID-19. I've seen colleagues from the workplace put together lesson plans because they know that other parents are struggling to homeschool their children and to telework at the same time. These are the kind of things that we do as human beings. This is what is natural to us. And I think that we, if we remember that, if we build on the humanity that we are seeing emerging all over the world in this moment of collective need, I do think that we can strengthen the best in us. I do think that we can prioritize relationships and put people back at the center of our lives. You know, when I ask myself what my top priorities are in life, they're people. They're my wife and my children and my parents and my sister and brother-in-law. They're my best friends. But when I look at how I live my life, if I'm being honest, it hasn't always been consistent with those priorities. I've often put the majority of my time, energy, and focus toward work and other pursuits instead of toward the people who are the highest priority in my life. And moments like this are opportunities for all of us to look at our own lives and ask if there's a gap between our stated priorities and our lived priorities. And this is our chance to close that gap. It's my chance to close that gap as well. One of the really heartbreaking elements of this pandemic that we've become quite aware of is people dying in hospital on their own. And there's something so heartbreaking about the last minutes of your life being alone. Now, you've seen other people in that, that situation a lot. What can we do to make that better? Because I mean, obviously, these are people not alone necessarily by by choice, i.e. their family would be there if if that wasn't dangerous. But what can you do as a doctor in this situation to make that better? This is such a good question, Rosamund. And it's, it's one of those exceedingly important moments that you receive relatively little training for in medical school. These moments when people are experiencing such deep pain and when they are going through it alone are moments where as a doctor or as a nurse, you have to really look past your medical skills in diagnosing and treating and reach for your human skills and empathy and compassion in being with somebody despite the uncertainty and pain that they may be going through. One of the things I learned 
during my own practice of medicine was that sometimes the most important thing I could do was to sit by a patient's bedside, to hold their hand, and to listen to them, to bear witness to what they were going through. I think in moments like this, we can also try to bring in the people who are important to them in their lives, if not in person, then at least virtually. I've, I've heard from doctors over the last few weeks who have gotten creative and arranged for family members to literally come up to the window on the opposite side of uh, a patient's room so that they can wave to them and see them. They've arranged for them to be able to speak to them via Skype or Zoom so they can have real conversations with them. Um, I spoke to one doctor who who set up a, a 12-hour Skype session with uh, a patient's extended family from around the world so that he would have witnesses and loved ones close by, even if only virtually, for those final moments. There are no perfect solutions in a moment like COVID-19. In the long term, the best way all of us can enable people to be with their loved ones is to do our part to help reduce uh, the peak of this infection and to support the scientists and, and others who are helping to develop the therapeutics and vaccines that we so desperately need in order to return to normalcy. But this is a moment where all of us have a part to play. You don't just need to have a medical license or a nursing degree in order to be able to contribute to healing. What you need most of all is a willingness to reach out to others with an open heart, with compassion, with the courage to care about them and to serve them and to help them in moments of need. Often in our lives, we look around us and we think everyone's life is perfect. At least that's what their Instagram feed seems to say and their other social media feeds. But this is a moment when we know that everyone is struggling in some way. We're all in the same storm. And even if we may be in boats of different sizes, we're all trying to make sense of this pandemic and make sense of our lives, which have been turned upside down. And so this is a moment where reaching out to others is actually in some ways easier than it normally is. And it's an opportunity for us to connect, to understand and ultimately to contribute to the kind of collective healing that we all need as a society. In the book, you talk a lot about how damaging loneliness is for our health and our longevity. What are the ways that it is that it hurts us? Well, loneliness is more than just a bad feeling. It impacts us on a mental, emotional, and physical level. We know now, in looking at the research around loneliness, that loneliness is associated with an increased risk of depression and anxiety, but also with an increased risk of heart disease and dementia, sleep disturbances, and premature death. The consequences of loneliness only seem to grow the more we study this condition. And I think it's a reminder that our social health is an incredibly important part of our overall health, that we were designed 
to be social creatures who existed in relationship to one another. And when we are out of relationship, when we are disconnected, when we feel alone, it actually places us in a physiologic stress state. The reason for this has to do with how we evolved over thousands of years. When we were hunter-gatherers, we relied on each other in order to protect ourselves from predators. We shared food with trusted friends and family members, which enabled us to have a more stable food supply as opposed to going through the booms and busts of an individually gathered food supply. And as a result, there truly was safety in numbers. But what ha- And what happened is that when we were separated from our tribe, we immediately became at increased risk for being attacked by a predator or for starvation. And we knew that. So we experienced an impulse in the form of loneliness that served as a signal that drove us toward seeking out our tribe. And so that's why we should think about loneliness not as a disease or a disorder, but as a natural signal that our body gives us like hunger or thirst when something that we need for survival is missing. The problem, though, just like hunger or thirst, is if that signal persists because the underlying need hasn't been met, if that happens for a long period of time, then it can start to do damage to us. If we don't have food or water for prolonged periods of time, we can become malnutritioned or dehydrated. And if we lack social connection for a prolonged period of time, then that stress state that it induces can become chronic, can lead to elevated levels of inflammation, and can contribute to an increased risk of chronic illnesses like heart disease. You quote in the book the research of Dr. Julianne Holt-Lundstad, and I have to say, I I found it staggering. So she was looking at those with um, strong social relationships versus those without, and and the impact it had in terms of premature death. Um, At the time that that research came out, and and please do explain um, to the listener uh, how, how profound that relationship is, was that deeply surprising to people? Julianne's research is really is extraordinary because it, it helped wake so many people up to just how powerful the physical health impacts of loneliness are. She performed at least several meta-analyses, so studies where she pulled together data from many other studies. And what she found in her in her research was that Social connections are in fact associated with our mortality, such that uh, people who struggle with loneliness seem to have shorter lives, and the mortality impact of loneliness appears to be similar to the mortality impact of smoking 15 cigarettes a day, and even greater than the mortality impact of obesity and sedentary living. Now, let me pause here and just say that I say this as as a surgeon general coming from a long legacy of other surgeons general who spent so much of our time and focus and energy working on smoking and obesity and sedentary living. But for many of us, and certainly for myself, I had not realized that our social health, that loneliness, may be just as important uh, in our overall health. 
And so this research was really striking, and it resonated deeply with people around the world who began to ask the question, have we missed something along the way? Have we failed to recognize just how important our connections to each other are? And I think the simple answer to that question is yes. We have had relationships in our life for millennia, but we have, I think, allowed ourselves we've allowed ourselves to to feel that those relationships are perhaps nice to have but not always necessary as technology has developed and science has become more sophisticated we've become more focused on issues like obesity and substance use disorders and cardiovascular disease not necessarily recognizing that these are all so deeply interconnected and so as we move forward that we've got to recognize that loneliness, again, is more than just a bad feeling. It has substantial implications for our mental, emotional, and physical health. And if we want to address the deeper health issues that we're struggling with as a planet, including substance use disorders and addiction, including depression, including violence in our communities, then we have to recognize that building stronger relationships with each other is an important part of that solution. And now it's time for a quick break. Hello, I'm Farajasat from Intelligence Squared. I hope you're enjoying this episode. Before we get back to it, I'd like to encourage you, our loyal podcast listeners, to subscribe to Intelligence Squared Plus, our new subscription service for online interactive events. Intelligence Squared brings together the world's top thought leaders and opinion formers, from Margaret Atwood, Thomas Friedman and Salman Rushdie, to Mehdi Hassan, Bernadine Evaristo and Elizabeth Day. Join us and take part in these exclusive online events where you can ask your questions directly to our speakers. It's only £5 a month and you get the first month completely free. Please do consider supporting Intelligence Squared and subscribe now by clicking the link in our podcast description. Thank you so much. Most of your book focuses on the US, although there are obviously lots of other countries are mentioned. Is the United States a particularly lonely country? And are there any other countries which have a greater sense of connection that perhaps we could learn from? It's a good question. And one of the things I realized in doing research on loneliness is that it is certainly not restricted to one country or one region, but that countries around the world are struggling with double-digit percentages of their population who are saying they're lonely on surveys. And it's important to recognize that people often under-report loneliness because of the unfortunate stigma and shame that surround loneliness. That shame, unfortunately, tells many people that if they're lonely, that they must be not likable or there must be something socially deficient about them. And so for that reason, it's hard for many people to admit to themselves or to others that they're struggling with loneliness, including to a complete stranger who may be conducting a survey. Countries like the United States and the United Kingdom and Australia uh, all have rates of loneliness that hover between the 20 to 25% range. But they're not alone. Many other countries in Europe have noticed similar patterns. In Japan, close to 10% uh, of people on surveys there uh, register as struggling with loneliness. 
I think it's more important than focusing on the exact number here because it's hard to compare apples to apples given these surveys were uh, were done at different times, sometimes looking at different populations and using different survey instruments. I think there's a broader theme, though, which is that loneliness is quite common uh, in countries across the world. Now, I do think that there is some variation uh, depending on the, the nature uh, of, of society. Uh, I think what we find in in modern day uh, communities is that loneliness, as I think of it, or the nature of society, if you will, is, as I think of it, it's a wide bowl uh, type society. And let me explain what I mean by that. Uh, in the book, I talk about three different bowls that represent three different societies, two of which we have, one of which I hope we can create. The wide bowl society, uh, which is modern society, is the kind of society where people of many different paths and persuasions and orientations can coexist. There's a greater willingness to accept people's individual identities. But the depth of that society, the depth of that bowl, is relatively modest in the sense that there aren't that many structures that naturally connect people or give them a sense of belonging. Uh, You have to swim around in that wide bowl looking for connections to other people and hoping you find them. By contrast, our more traditional societies, which are narrow bowl societies, so they're, they have a relatively narrow set uh, of identities and choices that they accept, but they have a great amount of depth in terms of the social structures that allow people to find a place of belonging. An example of this would be the communities that my father and mother grew up in in India. For my father in particular, growing up in a small village uh, in South India, it was fairly narrow, uh, the definition of who it was permissible to be. So for example, if you decided that you didn't want to get married, if you decided you wanted to pursue a career different from what your father told you to pursue, if you decided that you know you wanted to move out of the village, for example, and uh, go to the city, or if you realized that you were gay, these were all circumstances which were outside of the bowl. And you could get to feeling lonely pretty quickly uh, if you were in any of those circumstances. But there were many layers which made people feel like they were part of something, the extended family structure, the proximity of people in villages, and the likelihood that people stuck uh, to each other, the traditions, uh, if you will, around uh, religious festivals and others where people reached out and helped out each other and included each other, uh, there were many ways to feel like you were a part of something. What I think we need, what we have to create now, is a third bowl society, the kind of society which is wide and encompassing, which allows people of all identities and orientations to coexist and feel accepted, but also the kind of society that has great depth in the bowl because it has many structures that allow people to find a community and a sense of home. And what we've seen in the United States, which has been true of other countries as well, is that over the last several decades, many of those structures have begun to erode. Participation in civic organizations, in social institutions, in religious uh, gatherings, has all steadily decreased over the last several decades in the United States. And people have 
been more and more on their own to find a sense of community. This has coincided with an age in technology when people have the opportunity to to seek out others online and be a part of online forums, but it's not always the same. And so much of our lives online are complicated. Um, for every bit of positive interaction we may have, there are other elements too of our online experience. We may contribute to our insecurity, which might distract us from in-person relationships, which may lead us to feel uh, that our lives are far, far less uh, than ideal because we look at the idealized versions of other people's lives online. So our relationship with technology when it comes to community building and relationship strengthening is complicated, but this is coinciding with a diminishing of participation in social institutions, which I think has been contributing to our loneliness. So our quest now, our calling, I believe, one of the most important challenges that we have to take on is how to build that kind of third bowl society so we can both allow people of all of all, all paths to coexist, but create the kind of structures where they feel they can belong. Both writing this book and also looking at the role technologies played during the pandemic are in some ways bringing us together. Do you see technology as both positive and negative? And, and where do you fall in, in weighing up its role in this? Because obviously it, it does enable us to stay in touch at, at a time when we, we can't see people uh, in person. But at the same time, we know plenty of people who are on social media 24, well, all, you know, every waking hour, and, and they're lonely. So what is the role that you see it having? And how do we use technology perhaps better to combat loneliness? It's the right question, Rosamund, because I think we have obviously a very complicated relationship with technology. But when I speak about the topic of loneliness, I, the most common question I get is, is it because of technology? Is that why we're lonely? And so I, I don't think of myself as being pro or anti-technology. And I don't think it's possible to say that technology is hurting or helping us when it comes to social connection. Because at the end of the day, technology is a tool. If I, if I use technology to video conference with a relative who's half a world away or with a friend who's on the other side of the country, then it can be very positive in helping me connect. If I'm traveling to London and I post on social media that I'm coming to London and would love to meet up with a friend uh, for dinner and we actually meet up, then that's a great example of how online interactions can facilitate offline connections. So there's a lot of of good to be said about how technology is facilitating our connections. But here's where we can run into to trouble. When we use technology to the degree that it starts to edge out and crowd out our in-person connections, that can be problematic. When technology starts to invade our time with people such that it's distracting us from our conversations, then that can also be problematic. I will say that I've been guilty on a number of occasions, and I'm not proud of it, of talking to a friend on the phone while scrolling through my social media feed or looking at my inbox. And many of us, myself included, have convinced ourselves that we're good at multitasking, that we can pay attention to the conversation while also doing whatever it is that we're doing. But the reality 
is that science is very clear in telling us that we cannot multitask. What we do instead is we task switch, which means that when we are focused on our inbox or on our social media feed, we're actually not listening uh, to our friend, which is which is very problematic. So if technology either crowds out in-person interaction or dilutes our in-person connection, it can contribute to a weakening of our relationships. There's one more insidious thing, though, that happens with technology, which is one of the things that social media has a tendency to do is to accelerate the culture of hyper-comparison that already exists in, in society. So when you're looking at somebody's feed, you're effectively comparing their best days to your average days, and you often come up short. And those best days are are reflected in the curated pictures uh, that are posted and the uh, the posts of, about celebrations, about birthdays, about anniversaries, about other joyful moments. People tend to post far more about those moments of joy than about the challenges they're facing. And as wonderful as that can be to allow for joint celebration between friends, it can also create a very distorted picture of other people's lives uh, that can lead us to feel worse and worse about our own lives. I think about this in particular with young people whose identities are being shaped. And the more they feel that they are not measuring up, that they're not enough, the more it chips away at their self-esteem. Social media has also created an extraordinary platform for accelerating the cultural messages that come to children that tell them that they're not thin enough, that they're not good looking enough, that they're not popular enough, that they're not rich enough, that they're not famous enough in some way. And again, all of this can chip away at one's self-esteem over time. So if we want to use technology to strengthen human connection, we've got to recognize that it's a double-edged sword and that it can have both positive and negative effects uh, on our connection. And then we've got to pay attention to how we feel while we're using it and after we're using it. Uh, there have been many times where I have been on social media for for hours because it really pulls you in, and then afterward have turned it off and have realized that I actually felt energetically drained and felt worse about myself. Those are important signals uh, for us to pay attention to. It's also essential that we draw boundaries around the use of technology and protect the time that we have with people uh, so that we can devote our full attention to them. And that can mean that we put technology away when we're having dinner with our family. It can mean that when we're calling a friend to catch up with them or when we're seeing them in person to catch up over a meal, that we put away our other devices or commit to not uh, checking our email or looking at our social media feed or Googling the question that just popped into our head. Uh, these are not easy to do because technology, as it has been designed, pulls us in. Uh, and and it can be very compelling. But if we want to use technology to strengthen our relationships, we've got to be clear about its impact. We've got to be intentional about its use. And we've got to be rigorous about the boundaries that we draw in our lives so that we can focus on people and not on devices. Do you think technology as well encourages us to sort of more extreme positions? So, for example, 
it, it can obviously be great if you are growing up in a community where I don't know there aren't many LGBT kids and you find an LGBT community uh, online. Um, but at the same time, there's a habit of social media of sort of condemning people for for getting something wrong or whatever. And so that element can actually be all about shutting people out of the group and uh, also sort of in, thereby increasing those feelings of loneliness that they might feel, sort of so-called cancel culture. Yes, technology has not accelerated our ability to dialogue with each other in the way that many people hoped it would 20 or 30 years ago. What we found happen is that we found, let me say that again, what we found is that when people are in relatively anonymous environments, when they don't know who they're talking to, then they have a tendency to say things that can be more extreme and more hurtful. They also have a tendency to judge first and listen later as opposed to giving people the benefit of the doubt or recognizing that there is a real human being on the other end of that comment chain who might be a mother or a father who may have concerns about their own health, who might be struggling to take care of their parents. These are the, the human elements of conversations that we miss when we are solely restricted to online forums, to comment sections and articles, uh, to comment feeds. Uh, on social media. And I think it's important that we recognize that because there are different levels of conversation. And one of the things that we have to focus in on, on this time of great polarization in the country and around the world, is we have to recognize that you don't overcome polarization by throwing people together in a room with disparate views and asking them to talk about their positions and hash out a middle ground. But the way the way that we overcome polarization and bring people together is by building relationship first. Relationship is the foundation of dialogue. You can see this in your own families. If you have an aunt or an uncle or a cousin or parent who has very different views from you, but who you still love because you have a relationship with them, you might find that it's you're more likely to listen to them, to give them the benefit of the doubt, even if you don't agree with them. If they were in a crisis, you would show up. If you were in a crisis, they would probably show up too. So when we approach other people as human beings, as opposed to seeing them as opinions, then we interact with them very differently we tend to listen far more deeply and openly. In, in the book, I, I share a story of two extraordinary individuals, Matthew Shepard and Derek Black, who formed perhaps the most unlikeliest of friendships. Derek Black was the son of a white nationalist. His father was not just any old white nationalist. He was, in fact, the former Grand Wizard of the Ku Klux Klan. And Derek's godfather was David Duke, who was another former Grand Wizard of the Ku Klux Klan. As far as I can tell, Derek was seen as the heir apparent to the white nationalist movement in the United States. And he ended up attending New College in, in Florida, 
uh, a university here that is known for the diversity of people that it brings together and was thought of as a progressive institution. Not exactly the kind of place you would imagine Derek Black to go. But he attended, and there he met Matthew Shepard, an Orthodox Jew uh, who had experienced anti-Semitism before and recognized how powerful and important it was to create inclusive environments. Now, when Derek first got to campus, nobody knew about his background. He was just like any other college student. But at some point during his college career, when he was actually doing a study abroad in Germany, one of his classmates realized who he was and posted on a student forum uh, that they had discovered his identity. And there was immediate outrage all across campus with people saying, how could we allow somebody like this to be in our midst? What does that say about him that he is part of a white nationalist movement and we can't have this? And he was immediately shunned by just about everybody on campus, except for one person, except for Matthew Shepard. Matthew, as opposed to shunning him, actually invited him to the Friday night Shabbat dinners that Matthew used to host regularly on campus. Now, the other attendees of that dinner were furious. They thought that he was legitimizing Derek's views in some way. And they at least said, if you're going to have him over, then this has got to be our opportunity to confront him about the views that he has. But there too, Matthew said no. He said, let's have him join us for dinner, but let's not have it be confrontational. Let's just get to know him as a human being and let him get to know us as people. And that's what he did. And so for a couple of years, they would have these Shabbat dinners. And after dinner, Derek and Matthew would hang out because Derek really didn't have anywhere else to go. He was being shunned by everyone. And Matthew tended not to go out uh, on Shabbat. And so they got to know each other and their relationship deepened. And what happened is that Derek eventually came to renounce his white nationalist views. Uh, He had become close friends with another one of Matthew's friends. And through these two relationships, Derek felt like he was able to really think about his views in a safer space. He was able to dialogue uh, in a way that felt relatively free from the judgment that he feared. And it was only after enjoying experiencing these relationships for a while, though, that Derek went through that transformation. And his story was really quite extraordinary to me because he said to me, he said, you know, people think that you have a point of view, that you develop an opinion uh, or an ideology, and then you find the community that fits that. He said, that's not how it works. He said, you find your community and that shapes your beliefs and your ideology. That was a very powerful observation that he made. Because what he was saying was that our relationships drive how we think about the world. They drive our ideology and our belief. And if people that we come to know and love have a different point of view, we're more likely to listen because we're in relationship with them. His story reminds me that if we want to address the deep polarization that we're in the midst of in the modern world, if we want a better politics in our countries, if we want our kids to be able to see society come together 
and actually address big issues like climate change or like systemic inequalities. But we have to build relationship first, recognizing that that's the foundation on which dialogue happens. You know, Rosman, some, some people write books because they've done 30 years of research and they want to share that with the world. And other people write books because there's a journey that they have to go on and they want to share that journey with others. In my case, I had to go on this journey to understand what loneliness was, why it was so common, what was driving it, and ultimately how we could address it. And it was an intensely personal journey. It's, it's one that forced me to confront a lot of demons in my own life. It forced me to reckon with the fact that I was not living the kind of people-centered life that I knew was essential, that was key to my own happiness. But I was allowing so many other things to creep in to my life and that were interfering with my relationships, that I was allowing to interfere with my relationships. And that included work, including technology. But on the whole, it made me realize that part of what I need to do in my own life and part of what I hope we can do more broadly as a society is move in a very intentional way toward building people-centered lives and a people-centered society. If I had a single credo to put to this book, it would be just three words. Put people first. Those three words, put people first, are, I believe, the foundation that we need to start building a world that is grounded in human connection. If we put people first, that changes where we put our time, attention, and focus in our individual lives. If we put people first, recognizing that relationships are so powerful in our lives, that changes how we design workplaces. It changes how we design the curricula in school as we recognize that children need social-emotional learning early on. They need guidance in how to develop healthy relationships from the earliest of ages. And that is just as important a part of their education as learning how to read and write and do arithmetic. And if we recognize that relationships are at the heart of how we have been designed over thousands of years, then that should also impact how we think about public policy. Because we should judge policy not solely by the economic impact it has, but also by the impact it has on our ability to connect more deeply with each other. So whether we are designing policy policy around how we use technology or how we design cities, it's important to recognize that all of these have an impact on whether people cross paths with each other and on the nature of their social connections. When I left my time in government, I asked myself the question, what could I do that would help create a better world for my children? At this point, what I've come to recognize is that the most important thing that I can do is to support in every way I can more love, more compassion, and more kindness in our communities. 
because I've come to see that when we lead with love in our lives, when we, we lead with love in our workplaces and in our halls of government, that we create the kind of people-centered approach and people-centered life that we all desperately need. That's how we address loneliness. It's how we recognize and harness the extraordinary power of human connection. And it's what will ultimately make us healthier, stronger, more resilient, and more fulfilled. Thank you very much. No problem.